Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. So I was thinking through everything that was happening over summer, and I was, I was wondering what would be the right passage to preach. What would be the right synopsis of everything that happened? And this passage kept coming to my mind over and over again, and I think it came up throughout the summer over and over again for me personally, and even uh, in the youth. Uh, it came up in Pikeville uh, when we had a dozen churches come together uh, to glorify God and serve the community and to spread the gospel. Uh, it came up in camp when we saw students growing in their faith together, growing in unity and students coming to know the Lord. Uh, I personally use this passage uh, at least three or four times to share the gospel with, with people here in Kannapolis uh, because this passage just kept coming up throughout the summer. And it's a, a great passage. It always brings conviction to me. It always brings encouragement to me when I go through it. And the key theme to the passage today is unity. Unity, being one in Christ. So if you've been with us as we've gone through uh, 1 Corinthians in the evening service, whenever it's uh, my time to preach, I've been going through 1 Corinthians, and you'll remember that unity is a very important emphasis for Paul as he's writing to the church in Corinth, right? Unity is, isn't just a very important, it's the first issue he tackles. This church has so many issues, and he tackles unity first because it's that important. And it's critically important to the mind of Paul, to the other apostles, and to Jesus. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays for his people. He prays for the church to be one as he and the Father are one. So he prays for perfect unity. And then as a result, as a reason for that unity, he says, the world will know that you sent me. The world will believe me if my people are united. So I feel like I've said this a million times. I've said this in youth. I know two million times, and I think I've said it up here a million times. But Jesus's missionary strategy is not an amazing and engaging speaker. Jesus' missionary strategy isn't very entertaining and relevant music. Jesus' missionary strategy isn't the most brilliant scientist apologist that you can think of. Jesus' missionary strategy is the church being united, the church loving one another, the church being united around the gospel, sacrificially loving one another as the family of God. So we see Christ's mission strategy is unity. And I say this again because Paul is reminding us of this again 
And God has to remind us, as you look through the New Testament and you see those themes of unity, I, I had a professor who every year he would buy a new study Bible and he would read through that study Bible every year and highlight different themes that he's focusing on that year. Well, if you take, say, a yellow highlighter and you go through the scripture, especially the New Testament, and you highlight every passage, every theme of unity, I bet your Bible would be pretty highlighted up because this is is repeated over and over again because we so easily forget. We, we're, we have an enemy who wants to divide us. We have our sin that causes division within us and among us. And we have our flesh that wants to keep us at a distance. And because we so often forget about this crucial element of the gospel of Christ, he reminds us over and over again that we can't overlook this one simple word, unity. Unity in love within the family of God. This is our greatest witness to each other and to the world. So as we live on mission, whether we go overseas, whether we go to Pikeville, whether we go to camp, or if we're here at home, we cannot lose focus on the church being united. The church loving each other and being centered on the gospel. Because this is the main tool our Savior uses. So, if you have your Bible, if you want to start flipping to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians today. It's in the New Testament. After First and Second Corinthians, you get to say, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I remembered it. Go eat popcorn. Well, we're in the, the pop part, Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. And to give some background to the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. He's continuing his encouragement to the Philippian church, and this, this letter to Philippians is a breath of fresh air when you've been in 1 Corinthians for a long time. If, if 1 Corinthians, if the church in Corinth is over here on the spectrum of, of messed up church, Philippians is the other side. Philippians, the church of Philippi, they have it together. They're doing a lot of great things. Paul is writing this letter to the church. Uh, he's arrested, he's in prison, and the church... And Philippi loved Paul so much that they sent someone with gifts to take care of Paul and to encourage him while he was in prison. So Paul writes to thank the church, but even more so, he, he doesn't just write to thank the church. He writes to encourage them to continue growing in their faith. He says, guys, you are doing great. Sure, there may be a few issues here and there, you're doing great, but you're a healthy, thriving church. So Paul says, therefore, you should just kick your feet up and relax, right? No. Paul says, this world is too dangerous. The gospel is too important for you to let off the gas. This world is too dangerous. The gospel is too important. The church of Jesus Christ is too essential 
for you to relax. He encourages the church to press on, to grow in their faith, to joyfully press towards the goal of Christ. And then in chapter one, Paul starts with a prayer of thanksgiving. Then he rejoices even though he's in these difficult circumstances. He rejoices that the gospel is spreading. And then he gives a powerful passage that says, if you are a Christian, your life is all about Jesus. He says, to live is Christ. Paul says that if you're a Christian, you have a new citizenship, a eternal heavenly citizenship. And we belong to a greater kingdom. And then he goes on to show the Christian's purpose. And it is to glorify God by building up God's people, the church, and by showing off the gospel. So that's, that's why he says we are on this earth to live radically for Jesus and to glorify God by building up his people and showing off the gospel. That's why we exist. That's why we didn't just get saved and go straight to heaven. And then Paul follows this thought with our passage today. He, he, he said, fight for the gospel, stand firm even in persecution. Paul is writing from prison, not a lazy boy. He, he knows what persecution is like. And in the next breath, he builds onto these exhortations by saying, fight for unity. So with all this in mind, if you don't mind, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done from strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves." Look not every man to his own things or interests, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in earth and things oh, in heaven and earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and I pray that we will hear your voice in your word today, that we will be cut to the heart and live lives of humble unity to give you all the glory you deserve. Jesus, it's in your name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So what I want us to see here in this passage are four areas of unity 
that you and I have to fight for as we live boldly for Christ. So I say, I say that word fight intentionally. I think Paul uses war illustrations over and over throughout his letters because yes, we're in a spiritual war. Like I said, we have an enemy, but also because this idea of fighting, it's, it's an active word. It has the idea of being active. We're actively advancing. You don't go into battle with a beach chair and an umbrella. You actively train, you plan, you pursue, and you fight to win. So, so I want us to, to look at how we should be fighting for unity here. I had coaches in sports growing up who, who would talk about every single day the other teams are getting better. And if you take one day off and just stay stagnant, you're really degressing. If you stay stagnant, the, the, what, the other guys, the, the bad guys, they're advancing. So we have no time to stay stagnant. Like I said, that's why uh, Paul is writing to this great church and he's still telling them to advance. And I think this idea carries over to our spiritual lives today. If we aren't intentionally progressing, if we aren't intentionally pressing on, if we're not intentionally growing, then we're going to be drifting. There's no neutrality. So again, Paul is exhorting this church, he's exhorting you and me to keep growing. And we have to be active in this growth. And as a part of this growth, we have to be active in our unity. So first, we have to see and we have to remember, verse one, unity's foundation. Paul says, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy. Paul starts this exhortation by, by reminding us of the foundation that all of this is built on. And Paul uses the word if four times. And this if is rhetorical. He is using it to emphasize his point, to emphasize his conclusion. He, he's not saying that any of these things are actually in question. If uh, you're driving down the road and your teenager asks you, uh, maybe they're giving you a little bit of attitude, and you say, who pays for your cell phone bill? Who pays for your food and your house? Who paid for fill in the blank? Well, that's a rhetorical question, students, by the way. That, the, the, the answer to that question isn't actually up in the air for someone to answer. Like, we all know what that answer is. Well, Paul knows what the answer is here. He's saying, if there is consolation in Christ. We can really read that by replacing the word if with since. That, that's, that's the same message he's getting there. Since, because there is consolation in Christ. So, so this unity is built on the foundation of these four certainties for a believer, and the first certainty is consolation, is encouragement in Christ. This Greek word comes from the idea of one who, who comes alongside to help, to build up, to exhort. Jesus actually promised his disciples a comforter, a helper will come. 
And that's the same Greek word that he was talking about the Holy Spirit is used here about Christ. Christ, the king of the universe, cares enough to come beside you. Believer, he cares enough about you to offer encouragement. If you have given your life to Christ, you are united with him, and he wants to walk with you as you live for him. So be encouraged today. If, if you belong to Christ, then you can fight for unity because Christ is near to you. And then the second certainty that we see is that there is comfort in love. This word is a synonym. It's very similar to that word encouragement in the first part. If you have encouragement in the love that Christ shows you, then live out this unity, he's saying. This isn't just a comfort that comes from some generic love. That's fine. But this is comfort that comes from the love of Christ. The fact that he is ours and we are his. In the New Testament, we see that the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. And I was just at uh, one of my best friend's weddings uh, the other weekend. Um, and when he was standing up front, he, he's a, I think the best word, he's a silly dude. I don't know. Silly might be the best word. He is a fun guy. And um, he was standing up there. And then when his bride started walking down the aisle, when he sees his bride, the only word I can describe is this dude was giddy, right? He was like levitating. He was grinning ear to ear. He was like so ecstatic. And I, I know I see like tears a lot of times. This guy, it, it wasn't tears, it was just giddiness. It was, it was, it was fun to see. But, but he was ecstatic that the bride whom he loved was walking towards him. And this is a tiny glimpse of the picture of the love Christ has for you and me. He is ecstatic about his bride, the church. Is that not comforting to us today? You, you may be sitting here, you may be discouraged. You, maybe there's circumstances piling up and you feel like you can't catch a break. Maybe you feel like you keep falling short again and again in your walk with the Lord. But how encouraging is it to think that he is not a distant, unconcerned God, but he is like an excited groom. And he is excited about you walking towards him. And as we see in this passage, he, later on, he, he stepped down from glory to pick you up. So be encouraged by the love of Christ this morning. The third certainty that is a foundation for our unity is fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit partners with us. The Spirit indwells us, lifts us up to live for Christ. And the Spirit unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Spirit empowers us and strengthens us in our weaknesses. And you don't have to be strong enough yourself to overcome your weaknesses, the spirit is strong enough inside you. So lean on him. You can be united in the church because the spirit empowers you. That person gets on all your nerves, 
well, you're not strong enough in yourself to be united with that person, but the Spirit is strong enough for you, so lean on him and be united. The fourth certainty that acts as our foundation is affection and mercy. The uh, King James translators decided to be hyper-literal with this word, um, and they used the word bowels, and uh, we don't really use that word, bowels, in this sense. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word, you ready? Splankna. Everyone say splankna. Good job. One gold star. It literally means deep within, deep in your guts. Splankna, your inward parts. And it's used to convey this deep affection. So similar to how we would kind of use the word heart, they would use our guts, right? Their splankna. And they would talk about their bowels. So men, when you go out to lunch, tell your wife that you love her with all your splankna, okay? <laughs> but again, this, this, this certainty, we, we have this certainty of Christ's affection. Christ has deep affection for you. And Christ has shown you more mercy, more compassion than you could ever imagine. And all these things are true if you belong to Christ. Like I said, these aren't up for debate. If you belong to Christ, these things are yours, so lean on them. But I'm sure I'm not the only one who might look over this, these list of truths, and in my day-to-day -day life, just overlook it. Whenever we fall short and we fall into sin or selfishness, we are overlooking these certainties and taking them for granted. So soak in these truths. Let them be on the forefront of your mind at all times and live with them as your foundation. And then Paul continues with this as our foundation. Paul tells us to fight for unity's focus. Fight for unity's Goal, verse two. So he said, if these things are true, which they are, verse two, fulfill my joy. Make my joy complete. Well, how do we make Paul's joy complete? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. The focus of this passage is this unity that we're fighting for, it's, it's having the same mind, the same love, the same purpose of the gospel. And we, as Christians, are called to a supernatural love that transcends cultures, personalities, and preferences. We, as a church, are not united around our interests and hobbies. We as a church are not united around our personalities. We as a church should not be united around our preferences, even what type of music we like to listen to. No, we are united in love around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that places us in a family, and in a family, you have to love unconditionally. Even if you have quirky family members, you have to love them, get along with them, and seek after their good. If, if you go, if you get every single one of your preferences met in a church, 
then you've made church about yourself, not about the family of God. And this kind of unity and love comes through an eternal perspective. This isn't just normal, everyday unity and love. You have to have an eternal focus. Look at Paul's example. Paul is writing from prison, and he says, make my joy complete. You know what would make me happy? If I'm in prison, you know what would make me happy? If I'm not in prison anymore. Maybe um, some more snacks and some hot coffee, right? That would make me happy. But Paul says, you know what would make me happy as I'm sitting here in prison? If you guys were united in love. Paul had his priorities in order. He had an eternal priority. Not worldly. He knew what really mattered. And I think a lot of our issues will fall into the right place if we just adopted Paul's eternal perspective. I've used this illustration before, and uh, Mr. Danny Scott confirmed it, that it's true of firemen as well. But I heard a pastor talking, and, and he was talking about this soldier speaking with him. And this soldier who's military, and uh, he, he was talking about how the longer that they were cooped up in camp or in training in the barracks or whatever, the longer they were cooped up with no mission or no goal, the more restless they would become. The more the soldiers were just at downtime, the more bickering there would be with each other over big things, over small things. But then, once these soldiers receive their orders, once they work towards their common goal, once they had a mission, those things that they were bicker, bickering over, they faded away, right? They, they, they didn't have time to worry about that anymore. They had a mission to complete. They were on mission, and this could be life or death. Well, how many churches today have forgotten about their mission so all they have time to do now is bicker and fight within their church and badmouth other churches. And we have a mission. We have a new perspective. We have a new focus. So let's focus. Let's live for that eternal kingdom. And third, Paul shows us how to live for this unity, for this kingdom, and he gives us unity's formula. You ready for some algebra? Your, your favorite subject in Sunday school, right? Algebra. Well, I'll, I'll spare you the, the Y equals MX plus B. You can make your own symbols if you like that stuff. But Paul gives an easy formula for even the weakest math student to remember. And the way to achieve this unity is through humility. Verses three and four. Let nothing be done out of strife or vainglory, you can also say selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that's the Greek word for humility, in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man to his own interests, but every man also to the interests of others. Paul says, take away your vainglory and strife. Take away your selfish ambition and your conceit. 
This is a self-seeking, self-promoting attitude that creates, it even enjoys division. And it is wrong for them to elevate themselves above others with a self-promoting spirit. Now, we live in a self-promoting culture, don't we? I, I could just, I'm driving down the road and I see people with their Instagram handle on the, bat, on the window of their car. Like that, that's pretty self-promoting, right? I think that's just a silly little picture, but I think that's what we live for is to promote ourselves as a culture and it's nothing new, but we live in a prideful, a self-promoting culture and whether it's popularity or status or a following or wealth and power, we are all tempted to live in this same manner. And one, one pastor notes that this pride exalts self over the glory of God and the good of others. But as Christians, we are to daily die to self. So instead of promoting self, we have to die to ourselves and live for Christ. So we will never have unity when we're living for our own name. We'll never find humility when we are looking for recognition. Remember Jesus' words, when what you do in secret, your Father who is in heaven sees it and will reward you, right? Instead of living for our own names in humility, think about others more than you think about yourself. Now, this humility isn't some, like, self-consciousness. It isn't some, like, self-deprecating idea. This isn't, like, yeah, I'm the worst. Uh, like, that's somehow humility. No, this isn't really even thinking about yourself. This is thinking about others and their needs and their interests. I don't have time to think about myself because I'm focused on this person and what they need. And this can be done by all of us at times, but God is calling us to live a constant lifestyle of this. Daily dying to our self-interest and choosing to love others. And this sounds exhausting, to me at least, if we're trying to do this on our own strength. But remember the foundation of verse one. Christ is with us. The Spirit empowers us. We don't lean on our own strength. And when we live truly humble lives, we glorify Christ. As I was reading through this passage, I came across um, one of my favorite old dead guys um, commenting on humility. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of the leading medical doctors in, in England. He was... Um, a doctor for the elite in London, and he stepped away from that promising career to become a pastor because he was tired of taking care of people's physical needs when he saw their spiritual needs. So he became a pastor, and Lloyd-Jones, talking about humility, said he talked about his friend coming up to him and asking if how he could be more humble. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, well, I don't have any special remedy for this, he could say, do this and that and another, and you will be humble. And I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to go down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know that soon you will be proud of your prayer. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look in the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else 
when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. And Paul does exactly this when he switches. He shows us the example. He shows us the perfect figure of humility in the person of Christ when he shifts in verse 5. So verses 5 through 11, Paul actually kind of breaks into a song here, a, a, a song praising Christ and all that he's done. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Verses five through eight show the humility of Christ. Jesus was in the form of God. He is God. He, 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 couldn't, he could count equality with God as, as something that was already his, is what Paul is saying here. If he took the equality, the glory that God the Father had, well, it's already his. It's not robbery. That's what Paul's saying here in verse six. It could be confusing word picture there, but that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus is God, fully God, but the king of the universe stepped down. He humbled himself by stepping into his own creation. Jesus is God, and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh, not just human flesh, but he became a servant. The God of the universe became a servant. And look at the humility of Christ. He let go of the glory that he deserves for us, for sinners. So Jesus, being God, humbled himself. He stepped into his creation for the good of others. Not just his friends, but his enemies, those who rejected him. And he came, he lived the perfect life, perfectly submitting to the point even of death and death on the cross. He took the punishments that sinners deserve acting as our substitute. He died the death that we should have died. Jesus being fully God, fully man, paid the, the wages of sin and he took the wrath of God in our place. And it is the only way that we can be restored. Seeing Christ, seeing his life, his death, his resurrection, giving our life to him is the only way we can be united with God. And maybe you're here today and you haven't come to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you haven't experienced this comfort, this joy, this peace that God offers, the love of Christ. Well, you need to hear this, that Christ loves you and you just need to give your life to him. Turn from your sins, turn from trusting in yourself and trust in his works alone. Give your life to Christ. So as Christians, we should see Christ's example of humility and follow that. See what Jesus did and have that same attitude. Jesus wasn't putting down others. He wasn't gossiping. Instead, he was serving others and thinking of them more than himself. And then verses 9 through 11, we see his exaltation. 
He stepped down to save us, and he is high and lifted up in glory. And I could go on, but I just want to give two applications of, of these last six verses, five through 11, just two applications. One, Christian, as Barry and Karen want to come up, Christian, the only application for you in, in these few verses is behold your God. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at how good he is. Behold your God. The second application is give all of your life to him. He gave everything for you. What's holding you back? If you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus to save you, today is the day. You are here for a purpose. You are here to hear this message. Turn from trying to save yourself. Turn from trying to earn your salvation, finding satisfaction somewhere else, and find satisfaction, find eternal joy in Christ. If, if, if that's you, one of the pastors or a Christian sitting near you would love to talk to you about that. But right now, let's just go into a time of reflection. So we'll give a minute and reflect. We'll sing a verse. But man, reflect on that truth. We get to know God. We get to enjoy God. The God over everything stepped down to save you and me and to serve his enemies. What is stopping us from being humble? What's stopping us from serving like Christ did? What's stopping us from giving our lives to him and showing others how great he is. Let's reflect and we'll sing and then we'll close in prayer. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.